Hello, this is Shelly Cormier. Um, I'm from the Office of Multicultural Learning, and this is Word on the Street. So a little bit about myself. I use she, her pronouns. I'm very excited to be your new lead to this podcast. We also have a guest in this podcast from the MCC. Super exciting. Yeah, I'm from Washington State. I participate in D1 athletics, cross country and track. And yeah, I'll let Alex kind of introduce himself. Hi, my name is Alejandro Gonzalez. I work for the Multicultural Center at Santa Clara University. I'm the Youth Empowerment Program Coordinator. A little bit about what I do for that is I give tours to students in the area to show them the opportunities they could have at SEU in the future. I'm also a communications major, pronouns he, him. I forgot to mention that earlier. And currently, I'm considering emphasis on studying leadership and interaction and social interaction just because I want to continue working with kids in the future, and that's what I'm passionate about. Thanks for the intro. It was really good to hear about all the, the fun shit that you do. So today's main agenda, we're going to talk about the inquiries of why do women have different experiences with interacting with healthcare. So women are, you know, half of our population. It's just interesting that we are treated very differently and have different experience with interaction of healthcare. So I kind of wanted to explore that with you and we can kind of talk through the facts and information that I've learned and research. So yeah, we had a small conversation about it the other day, and even the little bit of information you were telling me then, it was shocking just because how can you not serve 50% of the population when it comes to medical treatment? Period. So, yeah, I guess we're going to do why is medicine having a lack of research on females in general? This is kind of based off of like whatever information that I was able to scrounge up by research. <laughs> Give yourself more credit. You, you did research. I did. I did do some research. Yeah. So let's see here. Women are less represented in healthcare research. These are like a few treatments available for women, specific diseases, general diseases treatment may be less effective for women or have worse side effects. So in general, like medications kind of can take differently to women's hormones in general, because a lot of medical training processes, like when you go through like trials, they weren't allowed to be a part of them until, like, 1977 or, like, was more promoted to be part of these trials within medicine. So that whole time, all throughout those medical trials, they weren't able to participate. So we actually don't know a lot of the effect on medicine on women and a lot of different side effects that can kind of pop up. So before the 1980s, it was just a hit or miss for medicine. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) like good luck we studied this only purely on men but you know let's see how it works out for you yeah and i would be scared yeah they did a clinical research which was male directed medical research by default was male-led in general so the physician of health study examined the effects of aspirin on cardiovascular diseases which involved like twenty-two thousand participants and not a single participant was a woman. Something about aspirin is just, like, something people take every single day. Like, some people take <clears throat> it a lot just to stave off a headache or whatever. Yeah, did you know, like, the number one cause for women's death is cardiovascular? So it's, like, the number one death for women is heart attack. I did not know that. Yeah, so why aren't they, why aren't they have any women looking at this study? I, I know, like, people are going to say, like, mostly they didn't, like, very much discouraged it and didn't allow it because women, if you had a possibility of carrying a child, that was the main one, 
because like you could affect like the child you're going to birth in the future or whatever in the process like if you're trying to become pregnant or something so that was one of the main things that was very like caused kind of this like setback but the also at the general like in general like then it means like there's just lack of research you know and then i also think that could be a worse cycle of issues that would come up from that well, like you said, the study before, the aspect aspirin has on cardiovascular disease, if cardiovascular diseases are affecting women the most, then they need to do more research into that to cause less death and make sure there is like actual research on it. Period. Yeah, apparently according to the Office of Women's Health, in 1977, FDA issued a guideline banning most women of childbearing potential from participating for clinical research studies. So... Yeah, yeah, because like a lot of drugs could be causing of serious birth defects, and that was the main thing, which is a valid, fair thing. So like that's how like how we would would we navigate that in general. Like I think in general, it's like you want to make sure we include women in these studies, but then also being conscious of their health as well without like. But it, you know what I mean? Like where's that line? Like I have no idea where you could draw that. Yeah. So a lot of the other issues that women are like unfairly represented in clinical studies because women are both like dis advantage to the amount of like like the FDA in the 1977 but also because if women are not necessarily involved with creating these trials women tend not to show up in the medical trials so like a lot of these medical trials that are led are led by men so usually they're led by you know med conditions or side effects so I think now like generally they're trying to do better about adding and incorporating women to medicine but because there's such a gap in medical history for women it's hard to close it and especially that in general women already have a stigma in medicine and just lead them to have an inability to get the care they need well there's one thing i see hope for in the future i know a lot more females in stem now than i have ever before honestly like i talked to a lot of my friends and a lot of them say like they're like neuroscience classes and stuff are woman dominated which is great so i think that gap has potential to close and can close yeah but there's also like so many factors that kind of close that gap like you know it's like we are constantly in history trying to close that gap between the disparities of inequality but there's so many things that like cut it off so yeah maybe there's more women that are going to be incorporated stem but when in the workforce in general they might be treated with sexual harassment or having more a lot of these barriers that lead them to not succeed or like climb up the ladder within the career they're doing because of these disadvantages of perception and disadvantages of, in general, being discouraged constantly. So it's hard for women to necessarily thrive in an environment that feels like it's constantly being pushed down and, like, ignored or dismissed. And in general, like, if you talk about even, like, family dynamics, family dynamics are a huge part of showing the disparity that's happening, that mothers usually do traditionally more of the domestic work and even if they do say they're like quote-unquote egalitarian marriage which is a marriage that's kind of like split up into like both partners do equal amount of tasks so maybe the partner does clean and maybe the other partner does do laundry and the other partner does finances or they both do it so that's more of an egalitarian marriage but most people in like traditional marriages are called like you know the father's the bread maker and the mother is you know stays at home cooks cleans takes care of the kids and that kind of mindset kind of leads into those also disparities that's created because even if women start excelling and becoming more like reaching 
equality and getting these disparities, they still end up with a whole bunch of barriers. So now, like, women can work. Right. There's a huge amount of women working. But if we look at when they come home, they have the quote-unquote second shift. Have you ever heard that? It's a reference of a novel. I have not heard that term, honestly. So it's this woman. She wrote a book. It was called The Second Shift. And basically... She explains this concept of when women come back from work, they work a second shift of taking care of the family. So the moment they get home, they start cooking dinner. The moment they get home, they start doing laundry. The moment they get home, they start telling their kids to do homework, clean up the room. Like, they're doing the extra work. They're doing a second, quote-unquote, job of My managing. mom needs to read this book. Yeah, it's a very interesting, like, a lot of women take it as normality, but in this case, it doesn't have to be. Like, splitting up tasks yeah. and work... You can totally do that with a spouse, but it just needs to be communicated. Because if you have these expectations that some men feel like, because I'm bringing in the money, I don't have to do any other task. Like, I don't have to do, because that's, that's the expectation for men to have just doing the work and bringing the money not to take care of the kids. And I guess, like, marriages are becoming more egalitarian, but these traditional roles are still being seeped in. Like, just like I said, the second shift, women coming home from work. That's a very realistic situation, which they come back and they take care of the kids. Yeah, when I was younger, my mom used to come back, cook, clean every single day. She, I'm the youngest of three boys. Like, she definitely had this experience, and that's why I want to bring this book up to her because I think, well, one, she loves to read, and then two, I think she would just find the content like a good read. Yeah, so recommend the second shift. It's about working families and the revolution of the shift of dynamics within family structures. It's by like Arlene Russell, host child. I don't know if I'm pronouncing that right. But, yeah, it was originally published in 1989. But I think it's a very interesting book reflecting over the kind of sociology kind of perspective and kind of looking in depth about where women sit in the family structure. Yeah, and it also, I think this goes back into your other point of the many hurdles women face when trying to succeed. Yeah, honestly. So kind of going back to our main question... Another concern that a lot of the time happens is that women manifest symptoms differently than men. So commonly, women are, like, very much misdiagnosed in medicine. So, like, heart attack symptoms are different. Like, that's why women don't actually get the help sometimes they do when they have a heart attack because they manifest different symptoms than men when they have heart attacks. Oh, that's actually the first time I've ever heard that. Really? Yeah. Yeah, like, I I think there's a lot of stories about it about women just being like, oh, I had a heart attack. They didn't, like, because they manifest symptoms differently. So doctors were like, no, you're good. (laughs) (laughs) No, you're not having a heart attack. I'm in your body, you can tell. Period. Like, literally, any time that women go into the medical field, like, I have to brace myself to defend myself. Like, I had a lot of experience, like, going into kind of medical environments because I've had, like, two knee surgeries, like, I tore my ACL. And, like, in general, like, I've been through, like, a lot of, like, random sickness. I had acid reflex, and they could not diagnose it. So they said, I had allergies, but I had acid reflex. I didn't know what it was. They're like, yeah, you have allergies. And I was like, okay. I don't think allergies make you throw up. Well, acid reflex, like, it just makes you feel like you're going to, like, sorry for the details, guys. It just feels like something's, like, climbing up your throat, and you're, like, you have this acidic thing, and you're really, really nauseous. And I was having this. I couldn't eat anything without, like, feeling nauseous, like, really, really sick. So I was, like, what is this? And I went there to the, I went to the doctor, like, three to four times. And then finally they were, like, you have acid reflex. I was, like, that was the simplest answer you could have given me. And the whole time they're, like, are you pregnant? I was, like, come on. It's my like throat. <laughs> I was, like, I'm really – because they always, like, medicine, they always think – 
when you are nauseous, like a woman's nauseous, she's automatically pregnant. That's the first thing they test. I got literally had pee in a cup for acid reflex. That's ridiculous. And actually, before my surgeries, they always make you pee in a cup to check if you're like if you're pregnant. And if, even if you say no, you have to sign a, like a freaking like paper that says I'm signing not to do this. Isn't that crazy? Have you had any like negative experience with medicine? Like. No, I've actually, like, every time I've gone to the doctor, it's just been pretty chill. I also, I'm not going to lie, I do avoid the doctor. Mm. If I'm sick, I do power through sometimes. We're all like that, especially you got those medical bills. Yeah. Let's not get started on If you're seriously hurt bills. or in an emergency, do go to the hospital, go see a doctor. Period. We're not promoting anything that is not in that realm. <laughs> the research is lacking just from the case of the fact that women weren't allowed in the medical trials mainly and also just from the aspect of stigmas add up and I think in general not having as many women doing those type of studies I think those are like different directions of why women aren't able to we're not like showing up more in medicine I think the world's getting better at like fixing that like there's also a lot of like lack in people of color in the medicine and like having their reactions go and like especially dermatology so, like, you know, like, how... Dermatology is so different for everybody, too. Exactly. Like, skin colors makes an impact. Specifically in dermatology, there's a lot of disparities within, you know, the POC community within skin color because, like, melanoma usually shows up differently in darker skins or lighter skins, and a lot of dermatologists can't really, like, pick out the differences if you see, like, different skin tones. So, like, usually when you have, like, a fear of, like, some type of cancerous you know, skin cancer, you have any signs about, usually you should go to a doctor who, like, you can, that sees people of color, if you're a person of color. So. This is actually something I do have an experience on. So, when I was younger, I was diagnosed with tumor sclerosis. I don't have it anymore, but pretty much what this does is it grows non-cancerous lumps across your body. So, when I was younger, they were trying to figure out what I also have an autoimmune disorder. So between that and the autoimmune disorder where my like when I get injured and like my skin pigments back, it doesn't skin pigment back the proper color. So if you look across my body, like I have a lot of random white spots. So between that birthmarks and the autoimmune disorder, like they could not diagnose me when I was younger. So it was like a lot of stress for my mom. She told me there was a lot of weeks she would be crying while I was just Aww. like sitting in the back seat and she was taking me to the doctor and I didn't know what was going on. You were just like bump skin. Yeah, I was just like, I got some bumps and now they're gone and now I just got white spots, bro. Yeah, but it definitely does take them longer to diagnose. Yeah, POC people. It's hard. Honestly, I feel like most of the time it's like, when you are there for the medical reason, it's just waiting for an answer, and that can be really. I think it's also U.S. US healthcare in general. It takes yeah. a longer time than other places across the world. Than, like I've heard from my family members in Mexico, like their medical systems, like processes are a lot quicker. Oh yeah, really? Yeah. I actually have no idea. I think in general, to like what we can do in the scenario of just like trying to close this gap is make sure we like have diverse representation in research and clinical trials. I think it's a main important factor to help move forward in creating, you know, more diverse information with not just only females, but people in general, races, ethnicities, stuff like that. Yeah, just so we can serve more of the world medically. Oh, I think we need to be more funding toward these things and more awareness 
including, you know, making more inclusive clinical trials and we should have policy advocations and, you know, people should be aware of these issues. So campaign awareness. Yeah, I feel like this is something that hasn't really been brought to the attention of most people because a lot of the facts you're bringing to me are things that I'm hearing for the very first time. Yeah, I honestly, a lot of people like, I feel like people know there's disparities, but they just don't know the specifics. Like a lot of the time when it comes to anything that's detailed within women's experience of inequalities, they just kind of know they're there, but they just don't know what it is. So there's a book called Invisible Woman, and it's a really recommend, really great book. And it really talks about the inequalities, like the specific inequalities. Like one of them talks about how the inequalities in like cars and how they're built for men to be driving in the passenger seat, it's built for women. So in a car accident, when you get an accident, that's why women are like, it's like 40% more likely to die from a car accident. Just the structure of the car because it was built for men. So they only test on like guys, like yeah, like the, the quote unquote order of like the dummy they have. They only test like guys kind of height, body composition, stuff like that. Oh, so like airbag safety and everything. Yeah, exactly. They're, that's why it's like, that's why seatbelts don't always sit really well on women's chest either because we have breasts. So you have two layers of both the airbags not working for you and both the seatbelt not fitting correctly. And women are actually more likely to get whiplash because their neck and how their compositions are. So that's, they don't think about these extra things that would also need to be supported for women. And I think it's really hard, like searching for a car, like especially like, as a smaller person, like, I'm, like, 5'1", and, like, when I go search for a car, like, when I can't fit in any of, like, German brands or anything that's European, like, I won't fit in the car, like, I will have to, like, stand to look behind me to, like, in the back seat. but if I'm, like, in, like, like, more, like, Asian brand cars, I realize that, like, I fit better composition because, like, like yeah, because, like, they're more of, like, served for the Asian community, and Asian community won't have the compositions are usually shorter, yeah. smaller frames, so the interesting thing is, like, those compositions of, like, the trials that they go through is like disproportionate. So women are actually just more likely to die in car accidents just because of that. They're meant to sit in the passenger seat, not the driver's seat, apparently. You've shocked me. <laughs> You've been astonished. I've literally, I was like, you, you looked at me to say something and I was just like, I don't even know because you just dropped a bomb that like, and it makes so much sense. Yeah. The fact that, yeah, no, they've, whenever you look at those crash test dummies too, they're always like around like 5'8 and like just like, there's no, there's no features on them. It's just, like, a random human body. Yeah, but recently they have been actually incorporating female dummies into the cars, but just recently. And I think they're trying to get better at it, but, like, hey, there's a step in the right direction. Yeah. And I think, in general, we don't think about women's safety in cars, and I think we need to really keep in tune. Because a lot of people, at least in, like, America in general, they all drive. Like, at least where, like, certain areas I were, like, public transportation is really crappy. Like, well, at least, like, unless you're, like, the city study, like, certain parts of the city or in the East yeah. Coast where they have a lot more better transportation, like, you need a car to get everywhere. So I'm, I'm from Los Angeles. You definitely need a car to get everywhere. So it's just, like, it's crazy to me that everybody thinks they're just safe driving around in their cars, but some people are just less safe than others for no reason. Yeah, actually, yeah, you're more disadvantaged when you're a woman driving in a car. Because also women tend to lean forward in the car because they can't see because they're not composition. Like, you, there's, yeah. like, a whole bunch. There was, like, a meme online that women, you could tell it's a woman driver because her hands are in the wheel and she's, like, leaning forward. It's because the composition of the car does not fit the woman. It makes so much sense. Period. That's what I'm saying. I think there's, like, little things that little underlying inequalities that people don't look at. Like, just, like, when it comes to medicine. Like, going getting medical care. People yeah. think it's everybody should get, should get medical care, but they don't get equal medical care. So when it comes in, 
talking about pain or talking about anything, they'll either just, you know, be like, oh, you're just overreacting. Or, like, if a woman's not presenting as, like, facial, like, pain, like, oh, my gosh, like, ow, it hurts. Like, they'll be like, oh, she's less in pain. But women are pretty good at, like, hiding pain, in my opinion, because also they go through menstrual cycles every month. You know, like, they're used to pain and discomfort. So if they visibly don't show it, it doesn't necessarily mean they have, you're experiencing less pain, especially, like, when it comes to guys in the medical field, like, guys will be like, oh, he's in so much pain because he's yelling and screaming. What's so funny is if you ask tattoo artists who takes pain better, they always say woman. Period. There, there's there's reasons for that. And I think we can kind of expand on this issue is, like, painkillers for getting birth control. So, you know, like, I actually don't IUD. think I've ever had painkillers. Pain really? No. Really? Oh. Well, so women, when they get birth control, their option for birth control is an IUD, which a lot of people talk about. And a lot of women talk about their experience of getting an IUD inserted, and it is so painful. Women pass out during this process. Women are in excruciating pain. And I had a friend who actually had a story about this. So she got an IUD, and she was experiencing severe pain, like Severe pain. And she was like, okay, that's weird. But then the people are like, no, it's fine. It's like normal. It's normal, normal. I I feel like I know where this is going. (laughs) Yeah. And so basically she continues. She's having really bad side effects from this thing. And she's like, oh, my God, I just need to get this out. So she goes out, gets it taken out. She finds out the IUD did not fit, like, her, like, uterus, like, area or whatever. Yeah, it was too... It was too big, so it was, like, crushing. Like, it was just very painful. Like, it was, like, digging in or something. And, like, it was just... Yeah, it didn't fit... Yeah, exactly. And she was, like, being, like, hey, I have an issue. This really hurts. They're, like, it's fine. And she dealt with that for months until she got it out. Months? Yeah, because people keep telling you it's normal. And most people, like, as a woman, like, when I was told about IUDs, they're, like, oh, it sucks for the first couple months and you're fine. Yeah, because it lasts, like, eight years or something. So they're like, oh, if the first couple months is a little, like, loopy. You're just uncomfortable for three months of your life? More no. than that sometimes. Like, it's hard transition for women in, like, birth control. Like, it doesn't sound so well. Why, why, what is, why is this a procedure? I have no idea. And, yeah, th- so they don't give you painkillers for this, that. This should not be normal to just be out of it for three months. Yeah, it is supposed to be, apparently. And so, you know how, like, men get vasectomies and they're, like, given, like, anesthesia and, like, they're treated so well and nice. They ask, they're like, do you want a snack after your procedure? Like, some juice? Like, girl gets her IUD in and they're like... All right, you're all good to go. <laughs> and then the guy for the first vas- high five. It's yeah, like, you, got it. <laughs> you got it. And like through the vasectomy, they're like, I mean, uh, they're I'm like most good dudes that like good after a vasectomy after like a week or something. I don't know yeah, any facts on vasectomy. Pyramid, like yeah, it's like literally after a week they're fine, and yeah, they get local anesthesia. Usually they get to stay after the procedure for a couple hours to like rest up a little bit, or someone has to drive them home, like. It's a whole thing. Like, a woman will... Use her legs. It's fine. (laughs) Women will fully go get their IUD by themselves and drive home. Like, you know what I mean? Like, it's just so funny that, like, these experiences, the treatment of it is so different. And, like, I'm... Okay, I'm glad that men are given this treatment. Like, I'm not going to, like, say don't... They shouldn't get this treatment. They have to endure the pain. But I'm saying women shouldn't have to endure the pain. Yeah, it's just like, where's this treatment for you guys? I know. And I think... Those are the little inequalities. Like, that's the main theme. Those are just little things that people don't realize build up. Like, Yeah, this is day-to-day struggles. <laughs> driving and going to the doctor. Like, this is things everybody does. Yeah, and you have to. And it's just, 
It's like everything part of your life feels like a battle. I'm not going to lie. I feel like my identity as a woman in general, like I feel like I have gotten, of course, like the comments, the, the things. And like, I feel like I've had barriers multiple times in my life that told me that I couldn't do it just because I was a woman. And it's just weird because when I was younger, like when you're a kid and you're like six years old, you're like, why can't I do it? Like you don't have that conceptual idea of what social structure is, like yeah. what they expect you as in, as these like gender roles and like expectations. Like I had no idea. So when I was younger, funny story, I come up to my parents and I said, I want to be a football player. I'm six years old. I don't know why I want to be a football player. But you wanted to. I want to be a football player. They said, no, Shelly, you're not going to be a football player. And I was like, no way. Like, why can't I? Because they're like, because. I was like, give me a reason. So I go to my room. I prepare a speech. This is what I do at six years old. I prepare a speech to fight my way to be a football player. So I come in and I start my speech. This is the only thing I remember. I had a dream. (laughs) You took inspiration, clearly. I literally did. I said, I had a dream that I would be able to do this and I was capable of doing it. And it brought literally my parents to tears. Like, don't know why. Like, randomly. And they said, yes, you could play football. They never signed me up. But I made my point clear. And so, you know what I mean? Like, you have these, like, limitations and you're just unaware of them. Like, I think in general, it's just like, when you're young like that, you just think you can do everything. And when someone says you can't, you are hit with this force and you're like, why can't I? And then it's like, it's because of this. And then it feels like it encapsulates your identity. Like, I would was part of a cross-country team in high school. I was the captain, and I was the fastest girl on our team. And a lot of time I ran with the boys on the team just because I did workouts with them. Like, it was just easier, so I wouldn't run alone. So when I did that, I'd always get these, like, little micro comments toward the guys on the team because they also felt threatened for a woman to be able to run with them. Just saying. And I would get, like, little little comments being like, oh, you're never going to be as fast because you're women or Until girl you beat them, <laughs> literally it's just like come on like don't 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 do this like you really don't need to say this but people actually will come up to you and say this type of stuff that'd be you are incapable because of this and i'm like honestly what let's be realistic there is real like realistic standards in place but i also think like you can't just shut someone down just because you think they can do something. They can't do something. Like, that is up to the person if they can do something or not. Like, people know their own limits. You can't decide other people's limits. Exactly. And I think a lot of the time, women are just basically told what your limit should be. You should only excel at this. You should only excel at this. And I think, you know, this is a conversation is being more prevalent about the inequalities in general from, you know, the Barbie movie. I didn't personally watch it yet, but I'm glad that these conversations are coming up and glad that we're showing and like opening up the fact that there are these like weird structures that are in place that don't necessarily need to be there and only prohibit people's identities. Yeah. I honestly had a little epiphany when you just said like women are always told what our limits are. I feel like that. So I work with kids and one thing I see is kids are always told by their parents what their limits are. And that's one thing I try to break. Like I want a kid to have to think they have no limits because if a kid thinks they have no limits, then they will reach out. They will go to their full potential and they will try to be something more. Mm -hmm. So it's like, why are you treating women like kids? Like, what what are you doing? Period. That was a beautiful statement. Yeah, I think in general, it's going to be. A struggle to get to where we need to be but I think just I think our society is moving in a good direction like I can see it going in a way where people stop putting as many limitations like people are literally 
starting like getting their kid and not even gendering them until they get older until they're like six or six or five yeah because of six that. or five is when kids know or have an understanding of their gender or identity so like usually like that's why when you're like in elementary school they're like oh those are boys activities boys have cooties like that's like the aspect they know how to differentiate between the two because that's like when the age that they actually know or know where these gender structures that's why like kids when they're young will play play house or like traditional roles and stuff like that so it's a very interesting thing that it's good to be going and helping the kids understand these concepts and not knowing that these boundaries are based off of societal but if they want to fit in a different area they can and i think yeah like i was trying to say is that like some people are having kids and not gendering them until they're like yeah six or seven and we're older anyways letting them get their own sense of identity norms are yeah and they're growing up with just they them pronouns that's literally the first part of their life is just they them if they want to continue they them or they want to continue like they can decide what they want and it's hard to actually not gender your kid like in general like first like the blankets the furniture all of it's like very much gendered colors the toys everything like barbie toys or like there's toys commercials too exactly everything's tailored yeah like gender structures are tailored in like every aspect of your life like things like we can name and list off things that women are associated with like wine barbies coffee barbies like pink teachers like a lot of child care child care anything that deals with child care and that is also another issue that child care is not giving the specific amount of payment and funding that they should give because they see childcare as a very female woman type of you know just a woman thing so they're like oh we can just lower the prices for it like gang pay so they have lower pay too anything that deals with childcare will have lower pay because that's like more of a domestic work so they don't think it owes more i'm literally in charge of their children give me your money no i'm joking <laughs> give me your money i am taking care of your kids no i'm joking yeah well, it's, it's a hard job that's the whole point of this is like childcare is not an easy thing so you know if you ever worked with kids you have 20 stories even if there was just one day honestly kids are just they're another thing they make me laugh though yeah kids really make me laugh they are silly goofy yeah Kids are malleable. They are, they're the future, so you can kind of teach them to be whatever. And you can let them decide that for themselves, what that whatever is. You know what's interesting, though? Because this brings up the thought that, like, when we want to open and diversify the mindset, we go to the kids, right? To, like, hey, this is the new norm. But isn't it feel like we're constantly, like, indoctrinating every time? See, I... I'm not indoctrinated. Like, I get what you mean. Sometimes it does feel like that when a kid asks me a question and I give them my answer because, like, they're really looking for what I want, what I have to say about it. Sometimes, like, you just have to kid what, give the kid what you really think. But most of the time, I always just try to show them what possibilities there are to their question. Mm. So it's like then they can go further themselves into seeing what this possibility is, what this possibility is, like, what this is. Mm. Just because I work a fine line of, like, you know, if if a kid if a kid asks me something, they go back to the parents, and the parent comes up to me later and says, "Hey, why did you influence my kid like this?" Like, I can't allow that to happen. I can't really be, like you said, indoctrinating the kids. So it's just more so about showing them like what there is. Oh, I think that's a good of, like, perspective. Putting them in there. 
like especially like I feel like a lot of people have issues with like teachers being openly gay or like you know what I mean like there's like yeah. things because they're like you're gonna indoctrinate our children but it's like if we're gonna think about the grand scheme of things indoctrination is what we already have just the structures that are in place like yeah. women should do this and men should do this and this is how it should be and you should be fitting in the binary or you should be because you were born a female you should be a woman like this is all these kind of indoctrinated aspects that are we're already breaking down so I think it's like the difference of us opening up that conversation is showing the perspectives that can be in it which lead to less of that like indoctrination versus more of like people are capable everybody should be capable and i think kind of just that inclusivity needs to be a part and relevant yeah one of the things i see for the future is just it's not necessary for everybody to love one another or anything although that would be great it's just it's more so having everybody be respectable and accepting of one another's different views and being able to like find different ways to compromise because in reality no one's really gonna to me in reality i don't think everyone's gonna fully come together within the next couple years and make a big hoopla and it's all going to be equal it's going to take a lot of time yeah and i think the progress is the little steps i think what we can do as individuals is just kind of talk about it and put ourselves in discussion and actively learn about our environment these dynamics ourselves because i feel like once we learn about ourselves and how we act and how reasons why we do things we're able to kind of talk to other people and share like share that message in general yeah just more open discussion between people allows people to understand better understand each other yeah because i think the whole goal like this is our main theme in the office of also cultural learning and the rsc is just like through our rainbow resources is that what can we do to make somebody's life easier and what can we enact to lessen that burden for them because i think once we breach an understanding with an individual it lessens that burden expectation of anxiety with interaction because I think a lot of people who, you know, everybody wants to be understood. That's a baseline. Like, how can we make everybody's lives feel comfortable and comfortable who they are without adding this extra burden to their lives? Because I think it's easy to be, like, individuals to burden others. So. Yeah, yeah we, we burden. This is actually something I talked about in some of my communications classes. Like, we unintentionally burden people all the time or just, like, we unintentionally burden ourselves like, one of the things we talked about, this is kind of a random connection, was just, like, gift-giving. When you give gifts, there's expectations of to, like, give a gift back and things like that. So it's just, when you're setting expectations, there's always going to be some burden. Yeah, I think that just comes with human interaction in general. And I think today that we kind of uncovered some topics, learned some new things, and just kind of saw that a lot of it is institutional, structural, stigmas were built into our own type of family dynamics we might have saw and you know like there's just very different elements that why people already think in that way so let's like figure out how we can get out of that cycle and in general but let's also be more of the aware of like the day-to-day struggles people go to Mm -hmm. that's all we can do and thank you alex today to join me for this podcast and being on one of our first episodes of season five i think that took away big takeaway is make sure you know what you're saying what can you do as an individual to less burden someone's life or make them feel less we always should be empowering people spread kindness and try to be understanding you know we might be able to grow up in different impossible environments and different places and that's very much understandable and that does take away a little bit that agency but 
actively what you would do as a person and to seek and to learn and to educate yourself, that's on you. And I think it's okay not to know something and it's okay not to be knowledgeable in everything. Just all you have to be is okay of learning and, and taking this new information and being open-minded. I think that's the best thing that we can do to close the gap. So thank you guys. Thank you, Shelly, for having me. This was so educational. Slay. It was awesome. All right. Share love. See you guys. Thank you.